Welcome to Built to Go, a van life podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Wagg, coming to you from the College of Curiosity. This time it's episode 137, and we've just got a lot of news to talk about. There's a lot of things that have changed in the last couple of weeks, and I'm here to bring it to you. We're also going to talk about an improved kind of electrical connector called the Wago, a tale from the road involving chili peppers, yes, the red hot kind, and a product review of a subwoofer that I think is going to fit in just about anybody's build. Hello everyone, welcome back. First off, I must apologize for taking last week off suddenly. I will get more into why as we get into the first feature here, but... We've got a lot to talk about, so I'm just going to jump right in. There has been a lot of van news lately, and uh, yeah, as usual, it's mostly not good. I'm, fr- I'm sorry to say. I mean, I don't know. What would good van news be? Like, there were more new vans on the market, or prices had come down, or gas prices had gotten better. Yeah, no, none of those things. In fact, the opposite of those things. First, I, I mentioned this earlier, but I'm going to officially mention it right now. Mercedes has decided that the Metris, the Mercedes Metris, the only mid-sized van sold in the United States, is not going to be sold in the United States anymore. They're still going to make it. You'll be able to buy it over in Europe where they call it the Veto. But in the U.S., it just, nobody was buying the thing, even though the post office had dozens and thousands of the things. And part of that was because they, they didn't know what to do with it. This vehicle was a cargo van, and they put seats in it, and called it a minivan, but it was extremely Spartan. It was it, The thing just didn't have very many features. Yes, it was a bit larger than, say, a Pacifica or a Sienna, but the seats didn't fold down. There were no entertainment systems. I mean, you know, for your normal quote-unquote soccer mom needs, it was not a good minivan, and it demanded a Mercedes price, so it just didn't make any sense. And that apparently was the thing that killed it. It was never a big player in the cargo van market. But I am kind of sad about this because it was the only van that was that size. It was longer and a bit wider than any of the other smaller vans, and it had a good roof height. And, well, nope, gone. That's gone. But that's okay because we still have the Ford... No, no. (laughs) Ford has just announced that they're getting rid of the Ford Transit Connect. Shocked. I mean, this was one of the main small cargo slash minivans in the U.S. It was what a lot of camper van manufacturers went to after the NV200 was discontinued. Nope, it's gone. 2023 will be its last year, and they're even getting rid of the four-cylinder engine that year, so it's going to be more limited. Ah, guess what, folks? That leaves exactly one compact cargo van left for sale in the U.S., and that is the Ram Promaster City, which most people ranked as their third choice of the three compact vans that were available when I started this podcast just two years ago. So uh, my advice is if you want to do a compact van, get one as soon as you can because they're going to be in high demand. These vans, despite the fact that they're not being sold in the U.S. anymore, are still hugely popular, especially in cities. I mean, here in Chicago, that's the most common kind of cargo van that contractors use. Now, sure, Amazon and FedEx, they're all using bigger vans. But if you look at contractors like electricians and plumbers, they're all using the smaller vans. 
and they're going to want to keep using them. So if you were looking to do a smaller van build, I'm afraid prices are going to go up on those used vans, and you've got to grab one while you can. We have lost so many vans in the U.S. We've, we've lost all the Nissan vans, and we just lost the Ford Transit Connect. We've lost the Metris. We've also lost the full-size Chevy vans. They're going away in 2026. Well, People still need vans, right? I mean, forget the van life community for a minute. Where are all the vans going to come from? Well, what's happening is that Ford and GM especially are coming out with electric vans. And GM's version is this thing called a Bright Drop, which is something that FedEx has been playing with. And it, it definitely is a departure from what we think of as vans. It has a 250-mile range. It's much bigger and much more futuristic looking. And we'll see how that works out. But they're not going to announce that for a long time. It's not supposed to be on the market till 2026 for normal folks. But Dodge, or Ram, I should say, just announced that they're going to have an electric Promaster. Now, there's not a lot of information available about this, but it's clear that the trend is smaller vans are going away, and I guess they're thinking that people only got the smaller vans for the better mileage, but if we have electric vans, they don't have to worry about mileage, which wasn't really true. In cities, people got them because they were small. Well, electric vans are coming. What that means for us I'm not really sure. I'm in conversations all the time about the pros and cons of electric. I am a fan of electric vehicles, but I also know that I can't own one because I literally have no place to charge one. I can't charge one at home. I work from home, but my wife actually goes to an office and she can't charge one there. There's just no place to plug it in. And I hear people say, oh, but there's stations everywhere. I'm like, but when do you go and do that? I mean, sure, I work at home and I could possibly carve out a few hours once a week to go do something at the mall or whatever. But my wife works like 10, 12 hours a day. Where is she supposed to find time to charge a vehicle? I mean, anyway, not going to get on a rant about electric. I am pro the concept. I think the technology is great, but we need to work a lot harder on infrastructure. And that concerns me about these vans. We use these vans to overland. You know, we're going on these long trips. We're going to drive to Alaska. And with a 250-mile range, which is much better than, say, the Ford vans have now, uh, I just don't know how it's going to work. So... We will see, but folks, the pressure on cargo vans is only going to get worse. Now, for some more quote-unquote good news. Uh, no, this isn't good news at all. I was planning on going to VanFest in Utah in September, and they just canceled it today. VanFest 2022 in Utah was just canceled. They didn't give any details in the notification. They just apologized that suddenly it had to be canceled. I can think of a hundred different reasons why they would cancel it, but... Mm, it ain't happening. So if you were hoping to see me at VanFest, uh, I won't be there. <laughs> I'm sorry. And maybe something else will come up. But uh, yeah, that's just one of those things that happens. It is very difficult to organize these events, and I have a lot of sympathy for the event organizers. So let's talk about fuel prices. Fuel prices have been going down, right? I mean, this is that one little bit of good news. Sure, they're more expensive than they were a year ago, but over the course of the summer, they've come down quite a bit. And that's true if you have a gasoline engine. If you have a diesel engine, they're going back up again. Now, me and my diesel sprinter, I pulled into the gas station last, uh, actually, one Sunday. And the price difference between a gallon of regular gasoline and a gallon of diesel was $1.50. $1.50 difference per gallon. 
There is no way you're going to make that up with any diesel reliability or diesel better mileage. I stick to my guns on this one. Diesel is dead. I'm sorry. Finally, I've had a lot going on personally these last couple weeks. Um, this is going to sound like whining a bit, but it, it actually had a much bigger impact on me than I expected. First, I came down with a case of dysentery, and even though I have been to Oregon recently, I didn't think that it would follow me. In fact, it's been a few months now, and uh, yeah, wow, I was totally out of it for about nine days. Couldn't leave the house, couldn't do anything that took longer than half an hour, and uh, yeah, it sucked. It seems like a stupid la-ha-ha kind of a problem, but no, it was actually a big deal. If I had been traveling during that, it would have been a major issue. So um, I'm better now, thankfully, and I was all excited to be better because a day after I was back to normal, I hopped in my van, drove down to my garage, which is about two hours away now, and started working on the van, and I got a bunch of stuff done, and then when I woke up in the morning, I couldn't walk. <laughs> My left ankles decided not to work anymore. I've got uh, Achilles tendonitis or something. And I, I had to come back home. I had to abandon my van build and come home because I couldn't walk. I, I mean, I could walk five feet maybe, and that was it. And that persists. Um, it's better now. I managed to walk a mile today. But that event... I mean, again, these are pretty minor things, right? I don't have a cancer diagnosis. I didn't get my arm cut off or anything like that. But I have big plans for this fall. I'm going to Antarctica. I've got big cruises planned. I've got a lot to do, and a lot of that involves me walking. And if I can't walk reliably, wow, that changes my whole life. And I started to realize that if my ankle didn't improve by the time I went to Antarctica in November... I probably shouldn't go to Antarctica because I really couldn't have done that much. Yeah, that could have got crutches. I could have got one of those wheelie scooter things that you kind of scoot along with one leg on the scooter. I mean, I could have found ways around it, but it would have been a drastic change in my plans. And that started to affect me emotionally. Like, yeah, all right, I'm getting older and I realize uh, I'm never going to be in as good shape as I am now. I'm, you know, whatever. I under I get all that. I've accepted all that. It's fine. Getting older is the price you pay for surviving. I'm okay with that. But this was sudden and it was having a major impact on me and I I couldn't do any of the stuff I had planned. I couldn't work in the van and I couldn't go down to the land we bought on the river and do any work on it. And that land requires a lot of work. And I started to realize that like, my wife can't do the work and I can't do the work. Who's going to do the work? It's not like we can even hire anybody. And this just spiraled and spiraled. And I probably got depressed enough to be classified as depressed for a bit. And that's part of the reason I didn't do a podcast last week. I just didn't have it in me. And so I relate all this not for sympathy or oh, for anything other than to say, well, two things. One, everybody gets depressed from time to time. It is okay. It isn't the end of the world. Know that it will pass. And if it doesn't pass, go get some help, just like you should if your ankle hurts or if you have dysentery for eight days. Yeah, no, I didn't get help for those things. But I should have, and that is my advice. Also, take the opportunities to do things while you can. Uh, and that is, don't wait for perfect. Good enough is good enough. And 
if I had waited a couple years to build out my little NV200, well, I may have lost that opportunity. They're not made anymore. If I had waited a couple years to go to Antarctica, I may lose that opportunity because maybe this ankle thing is going to be a serious problem. I'm not going to be able to walk reliably a year from now. I don't know. It's possible. So if you are someone listening to this show thinking, ah, van life, maybe another year, whatever, if you can do it now, if you have the ability to do it now, do it. Do not wait for the perfect moment because the perfect moment is the moment that you can do it. And you may have regrets. You probably won't, but you're certainly going to have regrets if you built up this expectation that you were going to do van life someday and then something happened and you couldn't do it even though you could have a year or so earlier. So there's my philosophical thoughts for the day. I hope that everybody is healthier than I have been and is actually taking advantage of the things they can do because you're really never going to regret that. Tech Talk. Let us talk about Wago connectors. Now, many episodes ago, I talked about butt connectors, and these are just the terms we use for the devices that connect wires together. And in the old days, people would just solder wires together, and that's not a great way to do it in vans because solder joints tend to break with the vibrations. So we, we want to use something else. And the cheapest, most traditional way is a butt connector, which is just a, a metal sleeve you put over both ends of the wires and you crimp it down and that's that. But they do come loose sometimes. You can't really tell if you've got a good crimp always. And they're not perfect, but they're cheap, so I still use them. There is a better thing, and that is called a Wago connector. That's W-A-G-O. And in the ambulance, there are a bunch of those that the original builder put in there. And they're a little hard to describe via audio, but they are these little plastic boxes, very small plastic boxes, a little bit bigger than a raisin. And they have levers, and you put a wire in each hole and then close the levers and the wires are secure in there. And what's great about this is that you know the connection is good. You can actually see, if there's a see-through part, you can see that the wires are firmly connected in there, and it's undoable. You can disconnect a wire, you can change the wires, whatever, and you can reuse this thing over and over again, which is good because they cost about 100 times more than a butt connector. However, if you're trying to build a quality build, and if you don't really know exactly how you want your wiring done yet, you're like, oh, maybe I'll do this on this circuit, maybe I'll do it on this one, whatever, go ahead and get a bunch of these. Seriously, just spend 50 bucks and get a big box of these things, and you're going to have a better build for it. There's one thing that these things are not good at, and that is running wires. You need to have your wires in place before you use these because they're bulky, and if you try to put fish tape on a wire that is connected with these, getting this to go around corners and go through holes is going to be a nightmare. So they're only good if your wires are already in place, but with proper prior planning, that is not that big of a deal. So I'll have a link in the show notes so you understand what I'm talking about. You really need to see a picture of these things, but Wago connectors are a superior way to connect wires. They're just a bit expensive and they have a couple of little quirks, but uh, I'm going to try to use them more. Uh, also, I should add, you can get them that will connect more than two wires. Some of them have three or even four holes for wires and that lets you do a lot of mix and matching and stuff so that's pretty cool too you, you can do that with a butt connector but it's 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 not a good thing to do tales from the road 
So, you know, I, I've done 137 of these episodes, and sometimes it's a little hard to think of a tale from the road that I haven't done yet. And then I do, and I'm like, I don't know that I'm ever going to run out of tales. <laughs> so here's one that actually does sort of relate to van life. It's it's amazing. Way back in 1988 or 89, I don't remember, I started working for a place called Native Plants Incorporated on Wakara Way in Salt Lake City, Utah. And uh, my job was Lab Tech 2, and that translated to me basically doing whatever they needed me to do in the lab, but much more often in the greenhouse or in the fields. I was basically a farmhand, and I learned a ton of stuff, and it really informed a lot of what I do in van life now, so I, I, I relished the experience. It was great. And at that time, living in Utah, I drove a 1983 Toyota Mini Cruiser RV as my main vehicle. It, if you've ever seen one of those little tiny Toyota RVs, this was one of the smaller ones. And yet it was fully self-contained. It had holding tanks, a toilet shower, the whole thing. And I just drove that around as my everyday vehicle. And people thought I was weird, and I'm okay with that. But I started this job, and... This job was a little bit autonomous. You, you didn't have somebody like watching over you all day. They basically said, here's the stuff that needs to get done today. Go ahead and do it. And then we had these standing jobs that were huge, that if at any time you ran out of work, you would do these jobs. And my first week there, my boss had to come and go. And he said, look, if you ever find yourself without anything to do, go ahead and do this major project that's been going on for years. And that major project... Sounds pretty simple. Taking seeds out of chili peppers. That's it. There was this giant rack of hanging dried chili peppers, just like you'd find in a Mexican market. And my job, and everyone's job, when there was nothing to do, was to crack them open, shake the seeds out, put them in a pouch, label them, and file them away. Because we were growing plants to try to make plants better. We were doing plant breeding, which is an old-fashioned way to do genetic engineering of plants. It, well, we don't want to get off into that right now, but that's what we were doing. And they warned me that these were very hot chili peppers, and they actually had us do this in a fume hood. If you haven't worked in a lab, you may not know what a fume hood is. It's, it's a box with a glass door on the front, and you lift up that glass door, and you can put your hands in there. And in the roof of this thing are two big, huge fans, or maybe one, depending on the model, that suck air up so that any fumes that are made in the hood will go up rather than out. That way, if you accidentally spill caustic chemicals or whatever, they'll go up out the roof and not into your lab. It's a good thing. And they said that you should do the chili peppers in there, because if any of the dust from the chili peppers got in the room, that would be bad. Now... I grew up in New England. My experience of Chili Peppers is that there was this band that had a video on MTV about coyotes or something, and they were this symbol of Mexican restaurants that we didn't have when I was growing up. I really didn't know very much about Chili Peppers. I mean, I, I thought jalapenos were the hottest thing on the planet. And I got an education. I don't know what variety these Chili Peppers were. They have probably never been named because we had hundreds and thousands of varieties of all these plants that just basically had just been invented and um, they were hot. Now I found out they were hot in a very bad way. These 
chili peppers were big, they're the size of a small banana, and they were very dry, and you just grab them and crinkle them up. But you wore gloves. You know, I was wearing gloves. They told me to wear gloves. But the pieces of chili pepper were sharp, and they would cut right through the gloves. And after a few minutes, I was like, I don't need these stupid gloves. It's just chili peppers. They're not even jalapenos. So I took the gloves off, and I'm, you know, I'm doing it, and I'm collecting them. And I see a lot of dust, and I'm like, okay, whatever. But, you know, I'm feeling fine. But it's getting a little hot in the lab, and uh, I I have a forehead sweating problem. My forehead sweats a lot, and so I'm going to wipe in the sweat away. And, and then uh, I get an itchy nose, and I kind of itch my nose a little bit, and then... I'm on fire! I am on fire! 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 Smoke is coming from my face! Flames! Yes, it was, uh, holy cow. Basically, I had pepper sprayed myself (laughs) without the spray. I had never experienced anything like that before from peppers or anything else. And I didn't know what to do. And I'm in this lab all by myself, and I see that there's an eyewash station, but I kind of don't want anyone to know that I did this. And if I use the eyewash station, it's a one-time use thing, and someone's going to find out. And I'm like, well, what do I do? And I'm like, wait, I've got an RV with a shower in it in the parking lot. So I ran out and ran into the shower, and I had it loaded with water. I was always ready to go, and I, I... washed my face off and my hands and it just burned and burned and burned and burned more and burned more and I started thinking about wait 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 is this water soluble or oil soluble what was the capsaicin I was trying to remember the math and and all that stuff so I found some hand cream and just poured it all over my face and hands and I'm on fire and I'm burning and I'm burning and I'm burning and I'm burning and I just decided that this has to go away either it's going to burn my skin off or my nerve endings are going to die or it's going to wear off or something. It has to go away, so I just have to time it out. And so I kind of sat there on the floor of the RV in a meditative trance for 15 minutes, and it finally started to calm down. And with my face glowing red embers, I went back into the lab and found something else to do. And, uh, yeah, that's how I learned to respect chili peppers. It turns out that uh, when they talk about Scoville units, as soon as they mention Scoville units, doesn't matter what the number is, you really, really should be careful. And uh, I-, I will not and have never made that particular mistake ever again. Afterwards, when I had worked there for a while and I confided this story into some coworkers, they said, oh, that's nothing. We need to tell you the story about the guy who picked these peppers and then went home for lunch for a little interlude with his wife and how he slept on the couch for a week after. But that's not my story. I will let them tell that story. Product review. So Sprinter Vans have... um, odd speakers. So so my my era of Sprinter van, this is the NCV3 from, say, 2008 to 2016, something like that. Their speakers are weird. They had tweeters in the dashboard on either side. They had basically mid-range speakers in the doors. And then there was a central speaker. And you might think, ooh, surround sound. But no, that central speaker, what it would do is filter out certain frequencies of sound and that's just broadcast what was left and the purpose was for cell phones hands-free communication so you could hear it better and that was great but what it meant is that for stereo music sound like the normal stuff you listen to it made the whole system sound like crap (laughs) 
after I learned this, and the speakers are 10 years old, they were all crappy anyway, I replaced the door speakers, the tweeters seemed fine, and then I just simply ripped out that middle speaker. And that improved the sound a bit, but the low range was just nothing. There was no bass at all in this thing. So I thought, you know, even though this will never be the best sounding stereo in the world, if I just had a little bit of bass in there, it would be much better than it is. And so I started looking at solutions, and of course, as soon as you get looking at subwoofers, you're finding these things the size of a boat that can, like, break mountains, and, you know, you don't even have to turn on the engine, you can just vibrate your van down the road, and, yeah, all right, I'm not looking for that. I'm looking for some little tiny thing that just gives me a little bit of bass. And, well, I found one, and it actually is pretty darn cool, so I thought I would tell you about it here today. My stereo is a Boss, which is not the highest-end stereo in the world, but it does have outputs for a subwoofer, so it was fairly easy, and what I ended up getting is the Rockville SS8P, as in Paul, 400-watt, 8-inch, slim, under-seat, active-powered car-truck subwoofer. Yeah, those Amazon titles, but yeah, it's a, it's a Rockville SS8P. And it's a very small unit. It's the size of maybe a dictionary. Uh, remember the, uh, those red dictionaries, American Heritage Dictionaries? Oh, God, maybe I'm too old that you guys don't remember that. But, hey, go find one. It's that size. And um, it, it, for my ambulance, it fit perfectly right in front of the console, which I have custom-made in my ambulance because it's an ambulance. But it would also fit under the passenger seat very easily or even above the footwell. It's just not that big. And it doesn't have very many connections. You've got power and ground, obviously. You've got a blue signal wire that basically will tell it to turn on when the stereo's on, which is nice. You don't have to do any kind of switching. And then you've got the input, which in my case was two RCA cables. Now, if your car stereo doesn't have that, if you don't have a sub out, this thing can do it all. You can actually just connect it to your existing speakers. It will take the signal from those speakers and then filter out all the high-range sounds, leaving just the bass coming out of this. And it is louder and stronger than any of my other speakers. So the concern is, is that, well, some songs have a lot of bass and some don't. Is this thing going to, like, blast out some songs and not others? And the solution they came up with is that it has a volume control that's on a remote. Now, it's a wired remote, but that's not too big of a deal. You just mount this knob anywhere that you'd like. Under the dash is perfect, or in my case, I mounted it to the side of the console. And you can adjust the bass as you go. Now, if you're, like, not really paying attention to the music and you don't want to adjust it for every song, that's fine. Just keep it on a low level. And then when a song comes on that you like that's maybe an older mix that they didn't bring the bass up very high, yeah, turn it up a little bit. And it's great. Honestly, it has made the thing sound so much better. And what I really like about it is that it was only 99 bucks. Yeah, it, it's... If you just want to improve the sound of a fairly modest stereo system, for 99 bucks, you really can't go wrong with this. It comes with most everything you need, but I actually bought a subwoofer install kit to go with it just to make my life easier, and that comes with the RCA cables and some connectors and things like that. But it was pretty simple. As long as you can get to the back of your stereo, you can take the dashboard apart and have a way to run the cables, you could install this thing in an hour or two with no problems. Uh, you can even put it, you know, you can put it anywhere you want. Base is not directional. So you could put it in the leisure space of your van. You can put it behind the seat, under the seat, 
wherever. And if you're in a car, a common place to put these is where the spare tire is in the back. So anyway, I like it. I'll have a link in the show notes. It's the Rockville SS8P. There are many others out there that are like this, but this one hit the right price point for power for me. And I honestly wouldn't get one that was cheaper than this. If you're going to think this one isn't the one for you, spend more money. A place to visit. This place is a little bit strange, and it doesn't get that much traffic because I don't think people really understand what it is, but I visited it in 2004, and it's still stuck with me, and so I thought, I'm going to throw it out there and see if you guys want to visit. This is a place in Damariscotta, Maine. That is D-A-M-A-R-I-S-C-O-T-T-A. Damariscotta. So the little tiny town of 3,000 people in the southeastern part of Maine, where all the people live. And it's been inhabited for a very long time. In fact, we know that people have lived there in great numbers for nearly 3,000 years. And we know that because of what they left behind. They didn't leave behind any buildings or monuments or carvings or anything like that. What they left behind was essentially a very, very large pile of trash. And now what kind of trash could they have made way back then? Well, they were a seacoast people, and being that, they ate food from the seacoast. So they ate a lot of seafood and a lot of shellfish. And they would eat the oysters or the cockles or the clams or the codfish or whatever they caught and then, you know, doop, throw the bones into a pile. Over the years, those piles grew bigger and bigger and bigger and there are now piles there 30 feet high or more. They take up acres of space. People live there long enough to build basically a mountain of seashells. Now... You can actually go visit this and walk through there because there are channels cut into it. And then there's the sad part is that this is not purely an archaeological site. It is today, but it was mined for many years for basically lime. You make lime out of old seashells. And a lot of it is gone. But there's enough there to still appreciate that you're standing in evidence that people have been living in this spot for 3,000 years. And if you read up on it, some of the history is fascinating because the lower levels of this, it's called a middens, a shell middens, have species that really aren't there anymore and everything is bigger. You can tell that when they first started harvesting in this area, they were getting bigger things. The oysters were bigger, the clams were bigger, and the codfish were huge. They were hauling in codfish the size of tarpon. And those just don't exist anymore. So there's kind of a natural history of the area. And it's also an argument of the impact of humanity on the ecosystem of the area. That, well, for some reason, in the last 3,000 years, all these animals were getting smaller and less diverse. And we know that people lived there that time. There's certainly a correlation. Is it causation? Mm, I'm going to trust the scientists to tell us that, but uh, I think the consensus is that, yeah, it pretty much is. The people living there changed the ecosystem because of what they ate. It's a fun little stop, could take an hour, maybe two, and it's in a part of Maine that has all this other stuff going on. So if you want to see something a little bit off the beaten track and a little bit different, 
check out the shell middens at Damaris got a main and the most famous one is called whaleback that's the really big one and you know they name everything after whales up there so that's why it's called that and if you want to search for it search for whaleback shell midden that would be the site you're aiming in on and i will definitely have a link in the show notes resource recommendation all right Most of you probably know about this, but if you don't, you really should, because I use it all the time. It is a very, very useful planning tool. And it is Google Maps, but not the Google Maps you use to get directions. It's the custom Google Maps you can make yourself. And the way you get there is you go to google.com slash mymaps. If you've never done that before, go ahead and get on your computer, type in google.com slash mymaps, and you'll see an interface that you may have never seen before. It's similar in that it shows you a map of the continent you're on, and then you can type in places. But when you type in the place, you can then add it to the map. And you can do this for as many places as you'd like, And then you can route between the places, you can measure distances between the places, you can change their icons, so you can say, well, this is home, and this is the hotel, so you do a little hotel icon, which is a bed, and then we're going to go visit the train museum, that's down here, and you put a little picture of a train, that sort of a thing. I've done one for my Antarctica trip, I've done one for the cruise that is coming up next year for the Panama Canal. I use this thing all the time. It's very easy and a really good way to get an overview of what you're trying to do in your trip. Now, there's one problem with it, and I find this absolutely bizarre, but there's no way to get the directions out of it, like into your phone, so you can follow them. It seems like the world's biggest oversight. Um, A friend of mine, Adam, made a huge, wonderful map about going around the Great Lakes on his motorcycle. And he had, like, I'm going to get a gas here, and I'm going to check out this lunch spot, and there's a nice view here. Very intricate, maybe 50 different points on this map. And then he realized he couldn't use it to navigate with because there's no way to do that. So these maps are for planning, not so much for actually using to get from one place to another. Silly, I don't know what Google's thinking. It's very strange. Anyway, check it out. If you've never seen it before, google.com slash mymaps. It's a whole new way to use maps, and it's something very, very useful. Well, folks, thank you for listening to this episode 137. Music, as always, is by Simon Wagg. If you would like to get a hold of me or if you would like to engage socially, we have social media all over the place. Discord, we have a built-to-go channel that has been fairly active lately. Until next time, remember the words of Walt Whitman. Not I, nor anyone else can travel that road for you. You must travel it by yourself. It is not far. It is within reach. Perhaps you have been on it since you were born and did not know. Perhaps it is everywhere, on water and land.